Lone Star Gun Talk is a Lone Star Gun Rights production. Original music and hosted by Derek Wills. Copyright Lone Star Gun Rights 2019. Father's Day, Lone Star Gunners. Welcome to Lone Star Gun Talk, the official podcast of Lone Star Gun Rights. Uh, Today, uh, we have had him on the show before, and we are going to have him on the show again because it is just always so awesome whenever he's here, and that is Phil Rabelais, uh, author of American Insurgent, the uh, new New York Times bestselling author. Uh, uh, Okay, maybe not quite, but he should be. Uh, Phil, unmute your mic so we can hear you, please. Um, so you can hear me laughing hysterically at the, uh, the <laughs> New York Times bestseller reference. <laughs> you, sh- you should be, though, man. It's uh, it's such a it- – first of all, it's always a pleasure to have you on. So thank you for coming back. And by the way, I didn't, min- I didn't wish you specifically a happy Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to you as well. Same, Same uh, to you, sir. Uh, well, I only have the, the four-legged furry children. Um, I don't know if that they counts. They count, so. Okay. No, they okay. count. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Um, but we I just finished your book here, American Insurgent. It is I, I I could not I could not put it down. It was it was real on so many levels. Like scary so because I'm reading it and there is very little suspense of reality at all uh you know usually whenever you read a a work of fiction there's like you know particularly whenever it comes to a geopolitical type thing you kind of have to suspend reality a little bit really the only suspense of reality i had during this whole thing was um this hasn't happened yet it really seemed prophetic um so thank you for writing this what do you uh so all right I know we talked about it a little bit last time, but what motivated you to to write this book? Uh, well, my inspiration for writing the book is actually a, a couple of fold. It, it's meant to be a cautionary note first and form, foremost, and that's not just a cautionary note for like advocates of gun control or even people that are, let, let's call them lukewarm on the Second Amendment, people who they own guns, but they don't, they agree with gun control. This was, this was meant to be kind of a, um, a cautionary note of if things keep getting pushed sooner or later somebody's going to push back and that's not me advocating for the kind of armed insurrection that's you know laid out in this book but it's just me saying that you know history and common sense tells us there's going to be pushback and it's going to be bloody and violent and it's going to rip communities apart because history has shown that if you go all the way back to the revolutionary war if you look at every attempt to subvert and subdue a population through force there's always a pushback it just depends on how big and how much steam it gains but the other cautionary note i tried to lay forward in this book was for those people who like beat their chest and scream molon labe and that we're ready to go to war with the government it was an attempt to point out like this is going to be an extreme if anything like this ever comes true and god i hope it doesn't it's going to be an extremely emotional traumatic event 
It's going, you know, like most normal people, myself included, I'm a military veteran. You know, in the back of our head, we always think to ourselves, like most of us join the military to serve our countries for really idealistic reasons. And the idea that we would ever have to take up arms against our own country is just it, it's stomach turning to us. It's it's an upsetting thought just to contemplate. Right. So I wrote this really to be a cautionary note for like everybody on both sides of the aisle as to, just to say this is going to suck a lot worse than both of y'all think. And maybe we ought to take a deep breath and come back from the ledge a little bit. Right. Hey, guys, if y'all are tuning in, uh, be sure to chime in. If you guys have any questions for Phil, uh, please let us know. I'll relay them to him. Um, and also, if you have any questions about the book, uh, be sure to let us know. Um, so I understand that uh, you're at least thinking about maybe a second book. Is that right? No, the, the second book is actually about two-thirds the way written. Oh, wow. Okay. By, yeah. My, well, my original goal was to punch out the sequel back in March. And obviously, we're, we're beating the door down past June, so that didn't happen. I had some issues in my personal life and my work life that kind of forced me to back-end my writing for several months. But now I'm back on it, and 56,000 words, is, I think, is roughly where I'm at, so... Wow. I'm just I'm just getting I'm just laying out the second major story arc in that book. So hopefully in a month or two. Awesome. Well, uh, uh, what's the title of this one, if you don't mind sharing? American Insurrection. Oh, original. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it, it if if you if anybody has read the American Insurgent, it, it makes sense. I mean, it does open up. It doesn't tie off all the loose ends. Um, it could have ended where it, where it was, but it definitely left it open for a sequel, uh, which I am very glad to know that, um, uh, that, that you're almost done writing that. Is there anything about the sequel that you can share as far as a synopsis or anything like that? Um, well, uh, without giving too much away, I'll, I'll just say two things. First of all, that you're right. There are a ton of loose ends intentionally left open in the first book. Um, that wasn't always there so that I could leave myself room to write a sequel, but it was more of a, I didn't want to wrap everything up in the, I didn't want to wrap everything up in the first book. It wasn't ever the intent. Right. You know, the intent was to, to kind of like lay forth a plot line, show a story, show what happened to this family and the, the group around them, but it wasn't to tie off all the loose ends. The sequel is not going to tie off all the loose ends either it's going to tie off some of them. And it's going to leave a whole bunch more open. Nice. So yeah, <laughs> I'm sure almost, it's going to frustrate it's, the hell out of some people, but it, it, it's almost like you're planning this, like a career path where you want to keep writing more. I don't know why you would want to do that. Um, I'm still working on my first book and it's been over a year since I started it. Uh, why would you want to punish yourself like that, man? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I don't. I don't even look at writing like a career. I mean, it, I'm not. I'm not making a tremendous amount of money off it. It's not paying my mortgage or anything for me. It, uh, my the re, the way I look at my writing is a lot the same way I look at my podcast. If it pays for itself, I'm happy to keep doing it. I, I hope somebody out there gets something out of it. Right. But um, I'm not going to be Stephen King or you know pick your favorite author. I, I don't see that. Books about. Good books about like fighting your government just don't seem to be super popular. New York, you know, New York bestseller material for some reason. It makes some people antsy. I can't imagine. But I knew why. that going into this. 
I, I know. Go figure. <laughs> but the other thing I'll tell the other thing I'll say about American Insurrection is that in some ways it's going to be a bit of a different book. It's going to it's going to have a little bit different pace. It's going to be a little Honestly, I was talking to a friend of mine about this recently. I told him like, you know the funny thing is when I sit down to write, I don't storyboard or make, you know, make an outline. I don't do that. I just sit down and write. And whatever comes out comes out. And if I don't like it or it doesn't work, I delete it and I start over, but I just, I really write by the seat of my pants. And when I started writing this book, I inadvertently made the main character, John Arsenault from the first book, almost a supporting character for half the book. Right. Like he got knocked out of the center, the center. He's still kind of the center point of the second book, but we spent a lot more time dealing with other characters revolving around John than we do John. Right. And it was like, after I wrote that, I was like, how in the world did I turn the the main character into a supporting character? <laughs> hey man How does this work uh, you know it's it's probably going to be an interesting dynamic i can't wait till that one comes out um what i found probably really interesting is um i know you a little bit i don't know i wouldn't say that we're like best friends forever or anything but as i'm reading this i'm thinking that john is you in many ways um is that is that accurate? Is John kind of based on you, at least in part? Uh, not just John, but I mean, I, I borrowed I borrowed very heavily from people in my personal life to flesh out the main characters. And it, you know, it's like I told somebody, I'm like, in order for me to really get inside that character's head, in my head, I have to know everything about them. I have to know their background, their mannerisms, their, you know, what color the, the tablecloth was at their fifth birthday i have to know everything about that character to really feel like i know that character so i can describe them accurately right and i'm and even though it might sound odd for an author to say i'm not that creative of a person i just i can't i can't do that so i literally thought to myself i thought back to um something that another friend of mine franklin horton had said and he he flat out admitted he's like you know most of the people in my books are people i know like they're put in fictitious situations but these are real people, and that's why I know them that well. And I was like, that makes a scary lot of sense. So, <laughs> yes, the main character is in large part based on, like, my background, my mannerisms, my personality, a lot of my own personal beliefs, some of my – I'm like uh, – in the first book, we go into a little bit of, like, how he was raised and conversations he had with his father. Those are conversations I have with my father. But I willingly admit I put these people into a fictitious situation, but – most I'd say better than half the characters are based on like myself, friends, close family. They're people I know well enough to be able to talk about for well, 240 pages. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, despite it being 240 pages, it was it was an easy read and and a pleasant read. One thing I when I really enjoy uh, reading history as as John Arsenault does. And he mentions that several times. But the problem with reading history is it's dry. It's not the sexiest of topics to read on, <laughs> um, particularly whenever you go into, oh, what did the what did the Stamp Act actually do? And you're starting to go in and read the actual legislation. It's like, God, what is? Why do I punish myself? What is wrong with me? Uh, but this this was such a ple pleasure to read uh, the entire time. Um, you know. Last night, uh, I picked it up again, and I was I was about halfway done, and I finished it in just 
uh, another couple hours and I, it was just captivating it was like i couldn't wait to turn the page again and i'd say probably one of the best parts well not the best parts but one of the best aspects of this is just how as soon as you start chapter one it is it's happening things are going uh oh uh phil are you still there phil uh oh there you are can you hear me yeah i can hear you okay we dropped you your robot like crazy for a second <laughs> <laughs> uh you you just went black it was it was uh it was crazy i thought the nsa was probably cutting us off or something um, Skynet's mad <laughs> um but anyway i i liked how you start chapter one and it is instant go 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 i mean rounds are pretty much flying just a few pages in and I, I thought that that was that was fantastic is is the second book going to be like that or is it a little bit did a little bit more drawn out um it starts out hmm, it starts out a lot like that and then it does it does kind of slow down the action slows down things get a little more nuanced and um i'll say that for the second book the, the, the middle of the book is going to be a little difficult for some people to get through. People that are looking for that constant action, action, action. Um, American Insurrection is not that kind of book. And in a lot of ways, American Insurgent wasn't that kind of book either. Because, you know, there are like several chapters in, in between action points, which is nothing but like people discussing their emotions. And the main character talking about how much he misses his wife and dealing with emotional trauma. I mean, it's, it's like I tell everybody, I'm like, if you're looking for an action book, this isn't your thing. It's just not. It's never going to be. It wasn't written that way. And American Insurrection's not going to be a pure action book either. What that what what I really wanted to get across in American Insurrection was almost like an instruction manual for what you do when the law becomes subversive. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, you know, I wouldn't call American Insurgent an instruction manual, but in, in American Insurgent is kind of like a history tells me this will this is the way this will happen. Right, and that's probably why it became. It's so. Uh, that's that's probably why it was so real for me to read because it's like I can see it happening this way. Um, you know, it's not going to be an all-out assault. It's going to trickle in just as it all you know has since 1934. Uh, just as it it continues to do with bump stocks and now suppressors and um, Red flag laws. Red flag laws. So uh, I can definitely see it playing out like this, where next thing we know, we're going to wake up one morning and there's going to be a mandatory registration. There's Then there's going to be uh, a confiscation. And um, with the media the way it is, I can definitely see them um, flowering it up a bit. Anyway, I don't want to give too much away of American Insurgent. Guys, this book is on Amazon right now for 12 or 13 bucks. Please pick it up. It is really fantastic. If you like the audio, uh, if you like audio books, uh, Phil got Liberty Lover, state rep out of Wyoming, Tyler Lindholm to narrate. And that was, that. I, I have to say, I very much appreciate that as well. How did, uh, how did that little thing work out <laughs> that's a story in and of itself um okay I, i've come to understand this like after tyler and i really kind of figured out who each other were um 
Tyler does narrate books and he has narrated other books other than just mine. So it's not like he reached out to me specifically or I reached out to him and like begged him to narrate the book. I took my book and I put it up on ACX.com, which is Amazon's kind of exchange between narrators and authors. And I got several auditions and one of them was from Tyler L because he hid his last name so that people who he was dealing with didn't know who he really was unless he wanted them to. And he told me later that that was an attempt to like keep people. It was an attempt not to let his position influence my decision, but it was also to allow him to narrate a book without him having to link that book necessarily to him personally. Right. And um, and I understood and respected all that, but I didn't know who he was until after I'd offered him the job. <laughs> I, he was just Tyler to me. So he did an interview. He did an audition for me, and he did the same audition several other narrators did. He was by far the best of the bunch because he, he, from the word go, like the part I picked was, um, actually, I think if you look at the uh, the retail sample off Amazon, I think that is part of the uh, the the audition part that he did. But it's there's a lot of emotion involved. There's a lot of dialogue, which is very difficult to nail. And it's dialogue between three to four different characters. So I was looking for like differences in inflection, differences in tone. I was looking for a person to really tell me they got that this is four separate characters, not just a person reading a book. Right. But the one thing Tyler did that like stamp a rule right there on the spot, the other two narrators, when they did this part, the main character's wife has a bit of really important dialogue in this scene. And the other two, the way they voiced her and portrayed her was like very meek and very kind of quiet and subservient. And I know that character because she's based on my own wife. And I'm like, that's not that's not how she said that. That's not how I heard it in my head. It's not that's not right. That's not that character. Tyler got it. Mm. Tyler is a Navy veteran. <laughs> and he and he told me flat out. He said, I know how most veterans wives are. They have to be as strong as their husbands. They have to be that forceful. And I, that was the only way it made sense to voice, the, you know, to voice the character of a veteran's wife, because I know one. He's married right. to one. <laughs> but well, um, after, I, after I gave him the gig and he and I really got to know each other, like I gave him a full out to not associate the book with his person with his personal name. So it would influence his public life or his uh, his standing with his voters. And he said, no, full send. I think this book needs to be read, and I think it needs to be out there, and I'll put my personal name on it. That's so that's been um, – it, it's it's been very humbling for me because, um, you know, I'm, I'm just a coonass from southeast Louisiana, and he's a public official. So he's got a little bit more to lose in the court of public opinion being associated with this book than I do. But he believed in it, and he, he felt like it was worth putting, you know, putting out there in front of himself. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic. Um, the only uh, the only bit that I've heard is the sample that's on Amazon, and I thought that he did a fantastic job just in that. Um, it it really was. As he's reading it, I I just think, wow, he's really good at this. It's like he's done this before, uh, which I didn't know that he had actually narrated books before. So, um, you know, well. That's uh that's a great story, man. I I hope that he narrates the second one. Uh, that would be that would be fantastic. That, we've already talked that over, and I already told him that um you know as a formality, I'll have to put the next book up on acx.com. But 
he's already got the gig as far as, <laughs> as far as as far as i'm concerned and he said the same thing he said if you as many of these as you write i'll narrate so that's we're awesome. the two of us have already agreed that we're in lockstep together that's fantastic man um okay so we've talked uh ad nauseum about your brilliant new york times bestseller and it will be because you have the attitude that it should be so stop selling yourself short this is a fantastic book american insurrection pick it up on amazon uh, including the audiobook. Uh, but let's talk about some some public policy things. Let's get you really fired up because that's that's whenever you you really shine. <laughs> um, in other words, let's listen to Phil come unglued. Yes, yes, yes. Let's listen to Phil come unglued. Let's talk. Oh, I don't know. Suppressors. Let's talk suppressors. How do, how, do you know that our president said that he doesn't like them at all? Fake news. No, but <laughs> <laughs> but he actually did. And what's frustrating is people actually say that it is fake news. He said the same thing about bump stocks. He didn't like mm-hmm. them. And what did he do? He banned them without even talking to Congress. Um, and now his ATF pick is uh, is a gun grabber himself. But whatever. Let's. Let's let's stay focused on one topic at a time. I would say that probably the most frustrating thing for me is people that make excuses. And I know that you share that at least a little bit because it's in your book, but let's not talk about your book anymore. <laughs> let's talk about well, it's hard it's hard to separate the book from my own my own personal brand of political advocacy, but you know, well, that's because that, that that's because it's it's real. Uh, this this isn't a work of fiction. It's just a work of future. Um, it it this is how it's going to go down. So it just everybody read that. Um, anyway, so what is going on with people? Why is it, it's, it's frustrating for me? But why do you think it is that people will justify things when a Republican enacts gun control or calls for gun control? Um, but whenever a de- Democrat's in office, they're like, shall not to be infringed. Not at all. Well, the, the two things you have to understand to understand like why this phenomena continues to crop up is, first and foremost, let's say that a better than average portion of our population are, are ardent ideologues. In other words, like they don't really they don't necessarily believe in a principle or they don't necessarily advocate for a principle. They just pick red team, blue team, and they stick to that. Let's let's accept that. I don't agree with it, but that that's human behavior is tribalism at its finest. And that's what we're seeing here is that if you are a Republican, if you vote for the R, if you vote for, you know, the elephant, then you have to agree with everything on that party's platform. And if the president suddenly gets becomes anti-gun, you can't call him out for it for being anti-gun, even though yesterday you screamed at a Democrat for that. You have to stick to your tribe. And that's what is going on in a lot of cases here. It's also the same reason why, because like I know lots of friends who are lifelong Democrats and they think gun control is stupid, but they'll still vote for the Democrat, even though gun control is stupid. And they agree with me that we shouldn't have infringements on the Second Amendment at all. They still will vote for the Democrat because that's their tribe. So right. tribalism is responsible for a lot of this. But the other thing, and this is what I find like really disheartening and, and frustrating is the flat out fact that matters is that there are not as many Second Amendment advocates as as I once believed. Like I used to think 
if you were not in favor of gun control, if you were a gun owner, if you were all these things, you were for the Second Amendment. And as I've gone through my own my own political advocacy in my personal life and in my podcast, I've come to realize I was freaking wrong, maybe mm-hmm. even naive. The fact of the matter is there are a lot of – every time you hear a person say, I support the Second Amendment, but they're not supporting the Second Amendment. Right. Every time you hear a person say – we need background checks. They don't support the Second Amendment. If they say we shouldn't have machine guns, they don't support the Second Amendment. If they say you think if they get all flipping with you and say, well, you think people should have rocket launchers and tanks, they don't support the Second Amendment flat out because the Second Amendment is amazingly clear and it's amazingly freaking short. There's the, the mention of the militia has nothing to do with justifying why the people have the right to keep and bear arms. And arms is a deliberately used term to encompass all arms. If you want to have a 105 howitzer in your front yard, you should legally be allowed to have that. But the problem is there's a whole bunch of people out there that are going to think I'm crazy. And they're going to say, well, we have to have restrictions. And the minute they say that, you're not on my team. You're not a Second Amendment advocate. You might be a gun owner. You might be a constitutional carry advocate. You might be whatever. But you're not for the Second Amendment unless you support 100% of the Second Amendment. And that is what I've come to understand over the years is that there are so few second true second amendment advocates and that is why the gun community seems so heavily divided because you have people like me who think no nfa silencers for everybody machine guns in every household rocket launchers if you can afford them tanks if you can afford to feed them because they go through gas like crazy and then you have people that say well we need restrictions and we shouldn't have bump stocks and bump stocks are stupid and silencers are scary and i don't like ars and all you need is a bolt action term oh you mean a you mean a sniper rifle uh yeah <laughs> I, look I'm, I, I'm telling you and i don't i don't want to be right but i know i am because i've heard politicians already uttering it but the, the the people out there who aren't in favor of bump stocks cans and ars who think well all you need is a bolt action hunt i'm i'm telling you from the bottom of my freaking heart there will come a day when those same idiots who are screaming on about my closet full of ARs are screaming about your bolt action rifle. And I am telling you now, right, wrong, or otherwise, probably wrong, because, you know, but I, I can be forgiven for feeling a little malicious about it. But when that day comes that they come to take your bolt action, I'm not going to have a lot of sympathy for you. I'm Fair. just not, because you people out there who think people shouldn't have ARs hung us or hang, trying to hang us out dry. Every time there's an assault weapons ban and you don't stand up and raise hell about it because it's something you don't personally own or agree with, you're hanging us out to dry. You're not supporting the Second Amendment. You're not supporting us. The The, the gun community itself is fractured because people people want to make the, the, the pro-gun argument into like these five or six little tribes when there's only two tribes. You're either for the Second Amendment or you're not. And if you're not, you support anything, any restrictions. You are not for the Second Amendment. And that, that sounds really harsh, but that's just the way it is. It's it's incredibly true, and uh, the truth is supposed to sting because that's how you know you're right. Um, so here here's something else that's been frustrating me about this whole tribalism thing is uh, the Speaker of the Texas House is a Republican named Dennis Bonin, oh, and Christ. he um, killed constitutional carry in Texas this year. Um, and whenever we rally against him, the same people that would be making excuses for Trump are saying 
he needs to be put out of office. So uh, my question to you is, what's the difference between the state speaker of the House and the president? Why are they held to two different standards? I think part of that is honestly down to demographics because, I mean, I, I personally understand and know because Texas is my home state. I know Texas is um, a lot closer to being a half and half state than most people realize. Like there's a there's substantial liberal populations in Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston. Mm-hmm. But the perception is that it's such a red state. We can afford to throw this Republican out on his butt and it not mean we're going to get a Democrat in charge. At the federal level is we we dodged Hillary by such a thin margin we can't afford to cross Trump no matter what like the worst Trump does he's still better he's still better than his, the alternative and I I think that's a little short sighted me personally but I think that I think it's a perception thing honestly but I I mean I personally I, and you said it and I agree with you wholeheartedly but what's are we should we judge a person by their words or outcome like. Eight years of Barack Obama, we saw no new gun control. Plenty of effort, but nothing actually accomplished. First term of Trump, we get bump stock ban. Now we're looking at suppressor. Now we're looking at more more regulations or a ban on suppressors. We we should get to a point intellectually where we start judging this man based on the outcome he's produced and not this this nonsense about he's playing 5D chess because he's playing 5D chess with conservatives. Right. He tricked and and he tricked me too. I voted for the guy because I thought to myself, I'm like, well, he talks a good game. He's got a good platform. And quite frankly, I mean, even above me on the Second Amendment issue, what he's done in like renegotiating our trade deals and Supreme Court picks, I don't think have been awful. So I voted for the man. I gave him a shot. But what he's done since he's been in office, in some cases, has really conflicted with me. So he won't get my vote again. But mm-hmm. I, I I disagree with the idea that. He's better than the alternative because, quite frankly, if we had a Democrat in the White House right now, the gun community would be united in fighting. Right. And as it is, we're fighting with ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's what's sad. And not to mention he signed uh, Fix Nicks, which is just a, a state bribery act to say, hey, dump all these records into the Nick system and we'll give you all this taxpayer money because reasons. Um, and so that's oh, a it's, a tro- it's a Trojan horse. Yeah. And flat well, out. What really, I, I guess, what really frustrates me about this whole thing is when people make excuses for Trump on the Second Amendment. Uh, all you got to do is read the guy's book that he wrote twenty years ago, and he told everybody where he stood on gun rights. He told everybody that he favors assault weapons ban, that he uh, favors extended waiting periods and magazine capacity limitations. He told everybody this. It shouldn't surprise anybody that. He's acting contrary to the Second Amendment. I mean, I know that there that a lot of people um, have other issues that they support, myself included. Um, but that doesn't mean that you make excuses for this action. You can say, look, he sucks on the Second Amendment. He's no better than a Democrat. But because of this, 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 and this, he will still get my vote. Or, no, he's done. He's he's. He's done for me. I, I I can't bring myself to support him again. Either way is fine. But to pretend like oh he's just trying to use the courts to uh to 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 
to to to make it to where it's firm and sticks and uh hell you you posted on your uh matter of facts podcast page that the Kettler case about suppressors being made in Kansas that the Trump administration asked the Supreme Court not to take it. Yep. So, and I've caught a fair amount of heat from a lot of people about that. See, people have said I'm spreading misinformation. People have said that I'm anti-gun. Some I, I'm somehow this 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 incredible anti-gun plant. And I've been I've been portraying myself as a conservative for all these decades just to fool social media so that I could spread this story. Really, guys. Really. Right. By the way, it couldn't, it couldn't just be the fact that I saw the news story posted on th by three different media outlets, and I'm like, might be something to point out to people. So if I may make a uh, have a little ADD moment here in the comments is Rhonda Michelle Seth. Uh, she says, uh, talking about Speaker Bonin, uh, he didn't just kill constitutional carry. He did it in a clearly deliberately deceitful way. He played the victim, which is absolutely true. Everybody, if you are listening to this and you live in HD25, which is Dennis Bonin's district, Rhonda Michelle Seth has announced her candidacy to uh, seek the Republican primary for House District 25 against Speaker Bonin. So you might want to show her some love. Okay, let's get back to uh, let's get back to all of this rhetoric that we're we're talking about here. So the Supreme Court's not taking up the Kettler case, um, presumably at the behest of the Trump administration and. Uh, and even if it's not at the behest of the Trump administration, it's still freaking infuriating. Absolutely. I mean, we want we wind up with a bench full of unelected bureaucrats, and they're supposed to be the ones that are like safeguarding the U.S. Constitution, but they are they are now an obviously politicized. Somehow, over the last hundred years, the executive branch via their appointments have managed to weaponize SCOTUS against us. Their whole mm -hmm. purpose is in moments where there's an obvious conflict between the, you know, between different laws. They're supposed to apply the U.S. Constitution and its amendments and say this is the final word, and they're not doing that. And they are doing it in an obviously partisan way. Of course. You know, the, the, the whole framework of the Constitution actually doesn't allow uh, for the Supreme Court to have judicial review. They just, like, yeah, we're going to do this, and it's fine. Uh, that's the way our country has been running since 1803. And so I guess there's not going to be any changing it without a constitutional prohibition on it um, because of the whole mentality on implied powers, which is something that I've never liked. Thanks, Hamilton. Uh, but, <laughs> but one thing that just strikes me is that we... The way court cases have been... It, and this applies across the board, but specifically for the Second Amendment. You have one case where they say this gun isn't isn't protected by the Second Amendment because this is not something that the military uses. And then they cite the same case in another case. They cite that other case and say, oh, that case didn't actually mean that because that would mean that full auto is is protected, which it's not because I said so. And so you'd be citing U.S. v. Miller and the Heller decision, I'm assuming. Yes, I am citing U.S. v. Miller and Heller. Uh, it's almost U.S. Like v. Miller, 1936. <laughs> any oh look, <laughs> any anybody that is, that is like truly one of the Second Amendment faithful, if you haven't 
dug into some of the Supreme Court decisions we're referencing. Like most people are familiar with Heller because it's fairly recent. It's within most people's lifetime. Far fewer people are familiar with U.S. v. Miller 1936, which was the original challenge to the National Firearms Act. Uh, the short version is two suspect, suspected moonshiners, moonshiners were caught by federal, uh, federal agents and since there was no contraband to insinuate that they were running a still because they were smart, um, the, the, the revenue were seized onto the recently passed NFA and found a short barrel shotgun in their truck. And that became – they basically said, well, we can't get you for moonshine. So we're going to get you for a firearms violation. Right. And when it was originally tried before it got up to SCOTUS, it was very clearly pointed out by that original judge that there was no way on earth that a $200 tax stamp for shortening a barrel on a $5 shotgun could be anything but regulatory and punitive in intent. Now, let, let's stop and think about this. this. This is not about just pay your money and follow the law. This is about the fact that when the law was originally passed, originally passed 80 years ago, you were paying a several hundred, almost a thousand percent tax on an item. Imagine your, imagine your gallon of gas costing 30 bucks a gallon because there's like, you know, a thousand percent tax on it by the government. Does that sound like a revenue raising measure or does that sound regulatory in intent? And it's been clearly laid out that the government cannot use the power of taxation in order to enact regulation via backdoor. That's been plainly laid out in our founding documents in our, in our earliest laws. But that is exactly what the NFA was and did. Furthermore, the same judge ruled that there was no way that the National Firearms Act could not be an unconstitutional infringement upon the Second Amendment because – because it, it, it directly infringed upon firearms that were absolutely used by militias and militaries around the world at the time it was enacted, period, and discussion. Short-barreled rifles, Thompson submachine gun, World War I. Short-barreled shotguns, trench shotguns, World War I. Suppressors designed by Hiram Percy Maxim around World War I. Hmm. All these items that are encapsulated in the National Firearms Act were, at the time the act was written, and passed were used by militaries and militias around the world. So the judge correctly applied the law at the time and said the National Firearms Act is unconstitutional. Throw the case out. The federal government appealed it to SCOTUS because they wanted to push the issue. Of course and they, they did. lied on the stand in front of SCOTUS. Lied. You can go. It's not that daggum hard to go back and find. All the, all the documents that support what I'm telling you, but they freaking lied. They sat there and they told SCOTUS these weapon, that the, these kinds of weapons being used were not used by any military at the time, which is bull. <laughs> and had anybody in SCOTUS been a military veteran, they might have known better. But they were probably a bunch of grumpy old fuds who were saying, well, we just use bolt actions. <laughs> so something that's uh, interesting Thank God that that $200 tax was never adjusted for the devaluation that our currency has gone through. Because I just pulled it up on the monitor for everybody to see. Uh, according to the inflation cal calculator, $200 in 1934 equals $3,822.27 in 2019. Meaning... And there, there have been attempts, by the way, to link the tax stamp dollar amount to the rate of inflation. Yeah, there have been attempts to do that. None of them have succeeded. But believe me, there are a lot of people that say, 
oh, it's only a 200R tax stamp? We got to make it harder to get a hold of these things, even though I just said you can't use the power of taxation to enact regulation. <laughs> well, um, well, they have, and they did, and they continue to do so. And, you know, one thing that's really irked me is the power of taxation is literally used as the foundation for every usurpation ever, ever, ever conceived. So we talk about all of the socialist policies that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to put in. And her solution to oh, that is God let's, Almighty, we're going to tax, we're going to tax the rich. And we also need to raise congressional pay because that will, that will prevent the dark money from going into Congress. Um, but we're going <laughs> to, <laughs> and by the way, oh I cannot, gosh. I cannot afford my apartment in Washington, DC. Uh, but, uh, I forgot where I was going with this. Oh, yeah. So she's going to tax all the rich to pay for that. We're going to forgive all student loans that Elizabeth Warren wants to do. We're going to tax all the rich to do that. So that's all the redistribution of wealth things. Then we have, well, these companies are being mean, so we need to tax them more. We need to put more regulatory burdens on them, which is more taxation. It literally is the foundation of everything. So I would be willing to bet that if you were to tie the hands of Congress on their ability to tax... Government would shrink like that because they wouldn't be able to fund anything. That'd be great. But what what do I know? I'm just a I'm just a little pee on nobody, right? Um but okay, so I saw this story and it made me laugh, partly because I I was reading your book at the time, and the ATF has apparently looking for a bunch of guns that they had in storage um that are now missing because um well they 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 were stolen so here's here's the story i'm going to bring this up for you guys to see atf agents searching for thousands of guns stolen from their facilities before they could be destroyed um i thought that the government was supposed to be the only ones with guns because they're responsible and they've had training derp 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 Backflipping FBI agent. Need I say more? <laughs> Too soon. Um, <laughs> I forgot about that video. That video was hilarious. <laughs> oh, listen, I will never let anyone forget about that as long as I live. Every time somebody talks about how well-trained federal law, federal and local and uh, mil, you know, federal and local law enforcement and military are, I bring that up and just watch them start grinding their molars to dust. Because <laughs> it's like, really? Well-trained, responsible, right. Sell me that one. Yeah, well, you know, they are uh, they are really the only ones that have all the training and they they are a morally superior type of person because of who they are and what they do. Which is why they're yep. the only ones that above can be corrupt. above corruption. I'm ab sorry, go ahead. No, you're right. They are above corruption. They are above uh, road rage and things like that. They've never abused their power at all. Um, but we're going to ignore all the Black Lives Matters claims because we're leftists and we pick and choose what we want to, to do. Um, so we're, we're, they're, they're responsible. And they would never in a million years... Do something like, oh, wait, uh, headline, off-duty LAPD officer opens fire during an argument in Costco, killing one and injuring three. Uh-oh. Um, am I mistaken, Bill? Um, I, don't, I don't understand what's happening right now. What, well, what, he, 
and here's me in a nutshell, not to sound like I'm recanting myself, but I mean, I have like several friends and close family members that are in law enforcement. It's a thankless job that I don't want that I applaud them for doing. And I recognize that there is a definite, genuine need for some form of law enforcement in our communities. There's a good argument to be made. It should be privatized. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in that theory, but, you know, regardless, most places currently use a public agency as, as to conduct law enforcement. But that being said, I point out issues like this because I can't stand the narrative that like only cops should have firearms or they're so much better trained than the average civilian or so much more moral because the statistics just doesn't bear that out. You know, if you compare like law abiding concealed carry permit holders as a population to law enforcement officers, law enforcement officers commit crimes of a variety of different level, you know, measures and levels at a rate substantially higher than your average law abiding citizen. Now, that's not me being anti-cop. That's just me saying that's just the statistics. You can you can you can talk all day long about my motivation for bringing it up, but you can't argue with statistics. With the with the statistics, it's there. It happens. I think that's an opportunity for us not to tear down cops, but to then say, you know what? Maybe people with concealed carry permits isn't a bad thing. Maybe it's not because statistics say it's not a bad thing. The statistics state over and over and over, and I understand that. Bill in the hands of law-abiding right. citizens was a bad thing. We would eventually see the, the we'd eventually see the murder rate start going through the ceiling in places where there's lots of concealed carriers, and that doesn't happen. When we have states or local municipalities that suddenly start granting more concealed carry permits for any reason, the murder rates don't go up; they go down. Could be total coincidence, but what it's not is an indication that guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens are a danger to society because it just doesn't work that way no matter how much moms demand attention and aoc and all the rest of these knuckleheads want that to be the truth it's not never has been it ain't gonna be it's the thing i tell people all the time when they get wound up about concealed carry permits and people carrying firearms i'm like i literally if i go down the street go down the street to get a gallon of milk i have a gun on me under my shirt with a spare magazine ready to rock and roll ready to defend myself and my family if need be and I, I operate like that on a daily basis. The only place I don't go armed is to work, and it's because it's a federal freaking crime for me to go into my workplace with a firearm. But that's the only place I don't go armed. I've never, ever, ever shot a person or even drawn my firearm with the exception of if somebody was trying to harm me or threatening me, period, end discussion. And I never will because I'm just – it's a moral issue for me above and beyond a legal one. So I guess my point of view is it's like in order for you to argue that guns in the hands of people is a bad thing, you have to first admit the fact that my gun in my hand's not because it's never hurt anybody. So well, if if I exist and I have never harmed somebody with my legally owned firearms, that means other people probably have to have done the same. It starts to tear the argument away, away because people want to say that all guns are bad and all guns can't be bad because you want the cops to have guns and you want the military to have guns. So if guns were bad, they shouldn't have guns either. Well, you you clearly are anti-cop and a white supremacist at the same time. 
Uh, you yep. hate poor people, and you can't, them. can't you, stand them. That's you, why I argue against there being a fee connected to concealed carry permits. Because why the hell should the poor have the right to defend themselves? The hell's I mean, hell, they're poor. We can't trust them with guns. Well, uh, yeah, and you also think that that kindergartners should be carrying guns around because that's clearly Absolutely. what you said. No. <laughs> No, no, no. Kindergartners should not be carrying guns around because, see, assault, your average assault rifle is a fairly heavy implement, and a kindergartner is a little small. However, cruiser weapons are tripod mounted. Kindergartners can mount and can man those just fine. Yeah. Mortars. Mortars, too. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. My wa- I thought my watch was on silent. It's okay. You did it on purpose. It's uh, still on silent. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's see. What else is there to talk about besides, um, oh yeah. Red flag raised on Trump's anti-gun ATF pick. Um, are you familiar with this guy, Chuck Canterbury? Uh, not. At all? Not? Not. No, because honestly, and I hate to say it at this point, but, um, I've reached a point with Trump and his, uh, picks where it almost doesn't matter what he does or who he suggests because he's already screwed us on the second amendment. So I just assume that he and anybody he appoints is out to get us as bad as that sounds. Let's see. But maybe not that far off the point. Uh, let's see. According to uh, gun owners of America, legislative council, Mike Hammond, uh, quote, he certainly opposes aspects of the constitutional carry legislation being proposed in Ohio. He went up and did a happy dance on behalf of Sonia Sotomayor when she nominate when she was nominated for the Supreme Court, and Eric Holder when he was nominated as Attorney General, uh, and he seems to fall within the trend of Trump nominating anti-gun zealots to top Justice Department decision uh, positions, and yet we have indicated that we think that his nomination should be defeated. Um, yeah, but Trump's pro-gun, and Trump Trump nominated him, so we have to we have to toe the party line. 5D underwater blindfolded bird box chest man like it's yes. it's 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 crazy he's like 27,000 moves ahead you have no idea like we the left is already in checkmate and they don't even know it okay i'm just going to throw that out there um <laughs> uh anyway um let's see here oh uh Rhonda Michelle Seth has chimed in again uh, she says, I'm an ER nurse in a in a freestanding ER. The only person or I'm the only person in the building with keys to the narcotics. That being said, we have no protection. I am unable to c- carry to protect myself. Sitting duck. Sad face emoji. Um, yeah, well, you know, if you combine your protection uh, of yourself with the fact that you have the keys to the narcotics, then that means that you're just going to instantly unlock the narcotics cabinet get high as a kite and then you're probably going to shoot the place up because that's what that means uh Rhonda, don't be silly please i mean think of the children think of the children um, or you could open the narcotics closet for whoever's trying to rob the place and then lock them in it and let the problem solve itself <laughs> uh yeah that would create solutions for creative problems phil rabelais <laughs> <laughs> Trademark that. Oh, uh, Jesus. Is nobody, there... would, nobody would read a book about all my creative solutions to problems. People would be horrified and grossed out. Well, I like how you labeled them as creative solutions because that's exactly what they are. They're not maniacal. They're not disgusting. They're not grotesque. They're not inhumane. Um, 
it's it's a creative solution to lock somebody in a narcotics cabinet until he takes all of the narcotics and overdoses on his own. But I digress. Uh, Phil, uh, is there anything else that you would like to leave with these fine people that are listening before we let you go? Uh, we got to get into um, the open carrier down in New Orleans. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for reminding me you about that. You forgot all about that one, didn't you? Dude, there's like a lot of stories that we were just talking about. I'm sorry. I forgot one. Jeez, leave me alone. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> uh, you go ahead and fill people in. I'm going to do a search and see if I can pull up the video that uh, you shared on the Facebook. So what, uh, what happened with that? All right. Well, the short, the short version is there is a local ordinance in, uh, in New Orleans. That, as best I'm aware, it's just a local ordinance that precludes a person from carrying any firearm within a thousand feet or a thousand yards, some asinine radius of any event that requires a permit. So this would be like parades, demonstrations, festivals, you know, sorts, the sorts of things where there's lots of people and a person, I don't know, a crazy person might want to have a gun to defend themselves in case one of the murderous thugs who are notorious for ripping these events apart happens to freaking do something untoward. Mm-hmm. Not like we don't have a shooting at every, we haven't had a shooting at almost every Mardi Gras parade in the last couple of years or stabbing or somebody gets their butt kicked or somebody gets their stuff taken. Anyway, that's all paranoia if you say I need a gun to defend myself. But what happened in this case was that best I can tell, this gentleman appears to have been an open carry advocate because he's had encounters with cops a couple of times in the past where some screaming, meany, you know, milk, soy, soy fed idiot called the cops, screamed about this guy's got an assault rifle. He's carrying a machine gun around. He had an AR-15 on his back, or he was carrying a handgun openly. And the cops would come, interview the guy, determine who he was, figure out he wasn't a prohibited person, and then let him go because he hadn't broken the law. Open carry is legal in the state of Louisiana. Unless you piss off the crown and you carry where they tell you, you can't exercise your rights freely. That's what happened in this case. This gentleman was taken into custody. Because he had a firearm, open carried, or even concealed carry in this case, within that arbitrarily defined radius of this of the, the gay pride parade that was going on. Or maybe the, na- the naked bike ride. They were both going on that day. I don't know. And what I find most frustrating about this, above and beyond the entire issue about, like, this is an obvious infringement upon the Second Amendment to tell me where I can or cannot exercise my inalienable rights. But what I found most frustrating is actually the gun community itself. Because whenever I raise hell about this sort of issue, we get a couple of groups of people that start piping up. We get the open carry stupid group because I don't agree with how the person's carrying a gun or the holster they're using or the gun they're carrying or whatever else. Open carry is stupid. Therefore, he shouldn't have done that. We get right. the assault rifle. No one needs an assault. No one needs to carry around an assault rifle. So, like, if you open carry a handgun, that's cool. But if you open carry a long gun, that's stupid. So put those two together if you want to. But that's two groups. Then we get the, oh, he was just, he's making us look bad. He's being confrontational, and he's open carrying, and he's upsetting these people. And that makes gunners look bad, so he's stupid. And then we get the, well, the city has a right to say where you can and can't carry because the city can also tell you you can't have the right to free speech or you can't have the right to a jury trial or you can't have the right to do any of the other things we have the right to do within certain areas. Because they say so. Right, because reasons. Yeah, all of these groups of people come out whenever an open carry hairy situation arises. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you fall into any of those groups, you're not a Second Amendment advocate. 
Because I don't have to like the gun you carry or how you carry or whatever else. But as long as you're not like actually willfully endangering the people around you, you have the right to do it. Rock on. Yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to agree with a per what a person's doing to do it. Yeah. Unless you you're tribal. Right. Which is the problem here because we get we get the assault rifles are stupid people. We get the open carry people are stupid people. We get those groups. And the gun community fractures, which is why we are never going to be able to stand up to these local municipalities and tell them, you don't have the right to tell me where I can and cannot carry a gun. Because we can't even agree on whether or not that right exists. I guess the $64,000 question is, how do you get people onto our side on issues like that? Honestly, and this is going to sound a bit Machiavellian, but I'm known to do that occasionally. I honestly think the way to do it right now is to is to go to the polls and vote for the most anti-gun radical leftist you can find on the ballot, period. Because I, obviously voting for pro-gun Trump has worked out swimmingly for us. So at this point, I think what the gun community needs is a boogeyman. They need Hillary Clinton. They need AOC. They need somebody who's telling them, I'm coming to take your guns tomorrow. And that might finally convince these people to shut up and get on our side because right now we're fighting with each other about who's right and who's right and who's wrong and who's got the right and we're fighting about all this nonsense we're fighting about bump stocks and suppressors and ars and ten thousand other things amongst ourselves we're not fighting against the other side i've got people telling me that i'm anti-gun because i think the nra isn't doing a great job of defending our rights and I'm the one who's been screaming rocket launchers for all for years. So we've come to the point where we, as a group, need a boogeyman to scare the hell out of the gun community and finally unite them. And nothing unites like a common enemy. And right now, we don't have one. I mean, you and I see people who are trying to take our rights, but the others don't. Hmm. So I guess what we really need is a hardcore anti-gun politician to tell the, the broader community – I'm coming to get your guns one way or the other. I'm going to nuke your city if you don't give up your guns and make that a valid threat. And then people will finally round up together and, and rally together. It's almost like your solution was written down somewhere in a book. Um, oh, you mean when the Redcoats kicked in the door at Lexington and Concord? No, no, in a book that was published <laughs> by you. Hey, that, that book isn't... that. I still to this day contend that when I wrote that book, all I had to do was look at history. History people, and this is a point I make in American Insurgent, I make it in American Insurrection, I make it in my public life. We are not doomed to repeat history if we don't learn from it or remember it. That's not why we're doomed to repeat history. We're doomed to repeat history because we will repeat it. Because until people as a as a biological organism progress, until we evolve we are going to be bound by the same wants the same fears the same motivations and we will repeat history because all history is is a record of what happened when people interacted with each other and those interactions are not changing there have always been efforts to concentrate the use of force in a small population there have always been laws passed going back, i mean going back to the 14 1500s there have always been laws passed to take arms, swords, knives, whatever, out of the hands of the common person, or just to make them so damned expensive that poor people couldn't have them. And then with the more modern invention of there being a middle class, a lot more people can have guns, so now we have gun control. 
because, you know, centuries ago, it was simple enough to make arms impossible for the average person to get because you were either a royal or you were poor and there was no middle class. There was no middle ground. And if you made arms expensive, then the poor people couldn't have them, which honestly meant that they couldn't overthrow the king if he became a royal bastard. Now, since arms are at an attainable level financially, now we just have to make a thousand reasons to take guns from people because they smoke pot or because they, 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 they failed on mental health evaluation or any of a thousand other little reasons why we're trying to invent ways to take guns out of the hands of everyday people just because we, we don't like other people having the ability to defend themselves and use force. Or they got in a fist fight with their brother at one point. Yeah. Tug, tug, yank, yank. Yeah. But what it boils down, what it boils down to is very simply, I didn't, when I wrote this book, all I do is look in a history book and it's been there. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. It's just a question of, is it going to happen while I'm alive or while my kid's alive? One or the other. Oh man, that's heavy, 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 heavy stuff. Um, well, Phil, it is, uh, it has been a pleasure as always, um, real quick, give people a rundown of your podcast in case they haven't listened to it yet. Um, make sure you guys go and subscribe to this, Phil. You could please. Well, if I haven't already freaked you out by saying you could go, you should go vote for Democrats. Um, the Matter of Fags podcast, we, we deal with a lot of like prepping topics, survivalism, first aid, self-defense, those sorts of things. We do delve into politics a bit here and there because my co-host and I are both fairly hardcore libertarians and small government advocates. And obviously, we're both huge Second Amendment advocates. So, I mean, the, the group that we've wrangled together, regular listeners of ours, they come from all those different backgrounds. If you're into self-defense, firearms, first, you know, first aid type of stuff you probably find something in our podcast that'll tickle you. And if you're more into the politics or the uh, social advocacy side of things, you might find something that, that interests you there too. But uh, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. You can find, you can find our live, our live podcast uh, comes out on Facebook once a month. And, um, I mean, Facebook's honestly probably the best place to get a hold of us. We do have a blog at mofpodcast.com. We use it sparingly. It's mostly a landing pad for the podcast. Well, there you go, guys. Give Matter of Facts a listen if you haven't already. I thoroughly enjoy it whenever I actually have time to listen to things. Um, uh, I'd say probably my favorite episode is the one y'all did on Ruby Ridge um, a while oh, back. Lord. That was a good one. I'll tell you what, that, that that particular episode, like, I was vibrating like a tuning fork when I got out of it. Because, well, call it what it is, you know, some of the subjects we talk about, even though I'm the one presenting the information, they're upsetting to me. I mean, it, things like Ruby Ridge and Waco, it, it's, it's, it's unnerving and it is frustrating and frightening to think that the government, not only did the government, like, burn down some, burn down a building full of kids and not only did they shoot a man's wife and ch and child in his house, but that the people around those instances never felt the need to come to their neighbor's defense. They sat there and watched it on television and watched these people be killed by their government. Like yeah. it's 1936 all over again. Hmm. I'm sure someone's going to be really upset at that reference. You're just going to have to be upset about it because that's the history repeats itself. That it does. Oh, it does. That it does. Well, uh, Phil, thanks again for being here. I'm going to wrap things up. Um, guys, uh, if 
uh, I need to click my outro, not my intro. <laughs> Guys, uh, the book again is called American Insurgent. Uh, it is available on uh, on Amazon for thirteen dollars. Please pick it up. Show Phil some love, uh, and um, the audiobook version is available as well. Um, Phil, thanks again for being here. This has been a wonderful show. And until next Sunday, Lone Star Gunners, arm yourself with knowledge and share the ammo. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Bye.